0: Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Juve. They are my go-to for red light therapy. This is also called photobiomodulation. So what on earth is that and why do I like it so much? In short, it's a way to support the body using very specific wavelengths of light. And the research shows that this can improve mitochondrial function, increase ATP, which is cellular energy, and create all of the benefits that go along with that. It's been used around the world for its anti-aging and skin benefits, as well as to calm inflammation. I've personally noticed the benefits for hair growth, skin health, and as part of my regimen to keep my thyroid healthy, even though I technically still have Hashimoto's. It's in remission, and I feel like Juve has been a big part of this for me. I have a big Juve light at home and I use it all the time, but I miss it when I travel, which I tend to do a lot these days. That's why I'm so excited about their new handheld device. It's called the Juve Go, and it gives you all the same power of a regular Juve, but in the palm of your hand, so you can take it anywhere. It's also less expensive, which is a plus. This means I can make sure that my thyroid and my face still get the benefits of red light therapy, even when I'm traveling, so that I can function at my best and keep wrinkles away here's the tip. I also like to use a dab of castor oil on my eyelashes and hairline just before using the Juve, as I found this is great for hair growth and the Juve seems to intensify the results. You can learn more and get a free gift with any purchase by going to juve.com forward slash wellness and using the code WellnessMama, all one word. Again, that's juve, J-O-O-V-V.com forward/wellness mama and the code wellness mama This episode is brought to you by Organify and I'm so excited to finally tell you about them because here's a confession I have known about Organify for a really long time and even though so many of my friends and experts I trust rave about them I never tried their stuff until recently because I thought first of all how can it actually be that good Well I tried it and it turns out that not only is it that good it's better than I expected Organifi has green juice, red juice, which is an antioxidant red drink, and it's delicious, and a golden milk turmeric drink along with a plant-based protein. Everything they have is completely organic and they all actually taste good, unlike a lot of other green drinks and protein powders. I've especially been loving their red juice lately, especially at this time of year for immunity. It tastes amazing, and it has a blend of antioxidants from strawberries, cranberries, blueberries, pomegranates, and they also add in beets, cordyceps, reishi, rhodiola, and a lot more. So this particular blend is formulated to increase energy, boost metabolism, and reduce factors that lead to aging. Their green juice is minty and delicious, and I noticed it has almost 800 five-star reviews. You can check out those two products along with their whole suite of products and save 20% just by being a listener of the wellness mama podcast, go to organifi.com forward slash That's O R G A N I F I.com forward slash wellness mama and use the code wellness 20 for 20% off. Hello, and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com, and today's episode is going to answer a lot of questions and requests that I get from you guys, and I cannot wait to share my guest with you because I am here with Dr. Katie Marks-Kogan, who is a board-certified, uh, she's board-certified in allergy and immunology and internal medicine. She treats both pediatric and adult patients. She's originally from Cleveland, Ohio. She received her MD with honors from the University of Maryland School of Medicine She then completed her residency in internal medicine at Northwestern and her fellowship in allergy and immunology at the prestigious University of Pennsylvania and CHOP. And after finishing her training, she moved to Southern California where she currently works in private practice and also serves as the chief allergist and a member of the scientific advisory board for Ready Set Food. And in short, she's super, super smart and incredibly qualified to answer a lot of the questions I know that you guys have about food allergies. So Dr. Koken, welcome and thanks for being here.
1: Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm really looking forward to this.
0: I can't wait either. And unfortunately, I know you share my uh, concern in this. This is a rising issue and an important one, certainly for especially all of our children. So I'd love to start with, could you kind of explain What's your thing? background and how you got into immunology?
1: Oh, of course. Absolutely. So after medical school, I went into internal medicine training. So I did a three-year residency in internal medicine. And during that residency, I knew that I wanted to specialize um, because I am someone who likes to know a lot about a few things rather than the opposite. And so, again, I knew I wanted to specialize and I wanted to find a field that allowed me to really work one-on-one uh, and have relationships with my patients and also allowed me to you know, really use my medical knowledge to sort of be an investigator, be an, a detective. And so uh, allergy and immunology, Uh, allowed me to do that and really the immune system has always really intrigued me and so in addition, you know, while I was in training, I was thinking uh, a bit about balance and about quality of life, and so I knew that this field would also allow me to have um, to have balance and so that 's all in the end why I ended up choosing this. I got very lucky uh, Northwestern has an amazing allergy program, so I was able to be exposed to everything early on, and that that really helped me. Uh, choose my path. It is a rising problem. In fact, you know, many of us are saying that it's really become an epidemic in our society. And um, this is very different, you know, than when our parents and grandparents were children. And so, um, again, it's it's become an epidemic. And currently, there is no cure. And so when we think about, um, you know, chronic diseases and chronic issues like that, you really have to get down to um, prevention. And, you know, there's the quote, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I think Benjamin Franklin said that. And so he was obviously a very smart guy and, um, and he's right. And so, you know, some of the, the thinking now, some of the, the theory behind why food allergy is um, increasing has to do with, uh, with food allergen avoidance. And so we'll obviously touch much more on that as we go through the conversation. But that's one of the main things I'll be discussing today.
0: Got it. So can you explain from a physiological standpoint, what the difference is between an actual allergy versus someone just being intolerant to something?
1: Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked that question. I, um, I get asked that a lot. And so let me start by just telling you what a food allergy is, sort of just in basic terms. Um, so, so basically a food allergy is when the body's immune system mistakenly responds to certain foods that it thinks are harmful. So our immune system defends and protects us from certain viruses and bacteria, we can call them foreign invaders. Um, And so basically, food allergies occur when the immune system sort of over-defends or over-reacts and treats certain proteins in foods as foreign invaders. These proteins are actually called allergens and our immune system makes special allergy antibodies called IgE antibodies to these allergens to help fight them off. And so these antibodies can help our cells cause a reaction when a person eats a food they're allergic to. This reaction can lead to symptoms like um, like skin symptoms like hives or, you know, swelling of your lips or your tongue or stomach upset. Um, it can even lead to more severe problems that can lead to a very um, life-threatening reaction called anaphylaxis, for which really the only cure that, or excuse me, the only treatment that we have for that is epinephrine. We can get into that uh, more later. But um, Specifically, with these food allergies that have the IgE antibodies, if a reaction ensues, the, the symptoms usually occur within seconds to minutes and almost always within two hours. And so, this is very different than a food intolerance so again a food allergy is where there's an immune response that occurs rather quickly and it can be life-threatening whereas a food intolerance is rarely ever life-threatening and it usually involves the digestive system. So for instance, lactose intolerance is an example, and that's where people can't digest certain sugar in milk, and therefore they get gastrointestinal symptoms like gas and bloating and uh, stomach pain. Another example of intolerance is gluten intolerance. And so that's very different than someone having an IgE-mediated wheat allergy.
0: Got it. I think that's really, really helpful com- context. And is the process by which each of these are happening, Are they? is it a similar immunological process or is there a difference? For instance, what would be the difference in the body of why tr- someone would be triggered to get an allergy versus just an intolerant?
1: Another great question. So we think there are multiple... Factors involved to why we end up becoming allergic to specific proteins in food, and um, it's again the immune cells play a role. The immune cells all sort of talk to each other, right? They're all friends, and they and they talk to each other and tell each other what what to do to help them uh, to help the body sort of fight off a foreign invader like I mentioned and so again if once they determine that a certain food protein is in a foreign invader then on each time they're exposed to that food protein they're going they're going to try to get rid of it and create a reaction and that's very different than Uh, in intolerance again we can look at lactose intolerance just as an example there are many different types and you you can be intolerant to many different foods but just because it's a very well known example we'll use that and the difference there is that um, if you have lactose intolerance you you don't have a certain enzyme in your gut that helps you break down one of the sugars called lactose in milk And so if you can't break it down, you can't easily digest it. And then it um, brings on these other sort of gastrointestinal uh, symptoms. And so you can see the difference there. One is the immune system and the cells talking to each other and creating a response. And the other one is just sort of a lack of something that helps you digest a um, a, a certain substance in a food.
0: Gotcha. Okay. That makes perfect sense. And I guess a follow up to that would be at least from my side. Granted, granted, I'm not a researcher or a clinician. I'm not seeing patients like you do, but just from the feedback I'm getting from moms, it definitely seems to me like these problems are both on the rise, but probably maybe even allergies a little bit more so. Like I hear from a lot of moms who have children with even anaphylaxis based allergies. And I know from hearing from them, it's a very scary thing. Why do you think we're seeing a rise right now, or are we seeing a rise? Maybe I'm just hearing from a lot of moms. Do you think this is a problem that's rapidly on the rise?
1: So you're absolutely right. We are seeing a rise, and it's well documented um, in in studies about you know prevalence, you know how how many people actually have the diagnosis, and how many people are being diagnosed every year. We are seeing, and it's. Uh, we're seeing a rise and it's actually quite drastic. Um, So, you know, currently it's estimated, estimated that about Eight to 10% of children in the United States have a food allergy. So if you sort of break that down, that's about one in 13 children. And if you think about school aged children, that's two children per classroom. So that's quite a few. All, we also know that these rates are rising and specifically if you look at peanut, the, the rate of peanut allergy has actually close to tripled over the last few decades. So. When we think about food allergies, really very few people are not either directly or indirectly affected by food allergies in today's society, which is unfortunate. Um, There are a few major theories for why we are seeing, you know, such an increase Um, And so I can I'm happy to get into those. Uh, And then obviously, if you have more questions, I can give details. But um, just to give an overview, one of the theories is that we um, are becoming or have become slightly more vitamin D deficient. And because vitamin D can um, help with our skin barrier function and can help with regulating oral tolerance. If we're deficient, then we might have um you know weaknesses in in those two things and so there are currently studies underway looking at vitamin d supplementation in infants and how this may or may not you know protect uh, from food allergies so that's one of the theories another one is the well-known hygiene hypothesis and so I think, you know, most people know about this. It was um, it was uh, first mentioned in uh, the late 80s. And basically, the theory says, the idea is that we're too clean. We have become a society that's too hygienic, too sterile. We've kind of washed and boiled and, you know, put Purell on on everything, every toy and cup and bottle and pasty. And so because of that, um, our children's immune systems are not exposed to enough normal or um, you could say good bacteria. And therefore the immune system might not be developing and educating itself early on. And so it's getting skewed towards allergy. Along with this theory is, you know, the fact that we have a very, you know, high use of antibiotics, almost, you know, an overuse of antibiotics, and so again, that 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 goes along with this. Um, and now we, you know, we we know a lot more about the microbiome, and we each we know that we each have our own sort of personal microbiome, and and the microbiome in the gut plays a big role as well. And so all of those things play into that um, into that theory. It's actually really interesting. There have been some animal studies where they removed um, all microbes from mice, and they um, – so they're called, like, germ-free mice. And what they see is they cannot induce oral tolerance. Um, so those mice cannot become tolerant to foods um, – And they, you know, they think it's because they lack uh, a sort of a normal flora. They lack this normal microbiome. So that's one amongst many, many studies that have helped support the theory, the hygiene hypothesis theory. So um, again, that's that's another major theory for why food allergies are increasing. And then I'll mention a couple others. Another one is is called the dual allergen exposure hypothesis. So it's a really fancy way of saying that at a young age, if a child with eczema is exposed to food allergens through contact with their skin, but is also not being exposed to those same food allergens in, in high doses through their, through their mouth, through their you know, GI tract, then they're actually at a much higher risk for developing food allergy. And so, you know, again, the reason for this is that you know, scientists and doctors believe that exposure through the digestive system is what offers the immune system a buildup of tolerance. And so if you if you get exposed to these same things through compromised skin, such as skin with eczema, you actually are more likely to build a sensitivity to it. And there have actually been quite a few studies to help support this theory as well. And so this brings us to one of you know the last ideas that I'll I'll mention. Um, with regard to why food allergies are increasing, and it's it's basically the impact of food allergen avoidance. And so, you know, historically, the medical community believed that avoidance was the best practice, and so they they used whatever uh, information, what data they had available, and made a decision that in two thousand um, helped them make guidelines. So back in 2000, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out guidelines recommending that parents avoid giving their babies allergenic foods until they were older. So for instance, peanut wasn't recommended to be introduced until age three. Uh, eggs were, were supposed to wait until um, the baby was two. And so um, so that went on for many years. However, since that time, Numerous studies have been conducted that have actually shown that the exact opposite is beneficial to preventing food allergies. And so, you know, guidelines have since been reversed and a lot of um, energy has gone into uh, spreading awareness and sort of educating the public and, and physicians that avoidance is really not the answer and unfortunately that that was you know that that was incorrect and um now there as i mentioned there's robust evidence saying saying the opposite so those are some general ideas i'm happy to get into it more but that's that's the summary
0: i love that i love that you brought up the hygiene hypothesis too because i've that's something i've been saying for years just on the limited research that i was seeing is that I think we are over sanitizing our environments, and not to say we should be purposely exposing to dangerous bacteria, but there are a lot in the natural environment that we're not getting. And I know that I've seen various different potential links between even just having a pet that goes in and out of doors and brings bacteria and reduced allergy risk, or children spending more time outside, which of course we know has many benefits beyond just that. But um, I love that you brought that up. And I also love that you. Um, that last point you brought up about the avoidance, because I think there's so much confusion, especially among parents of which many of the people listening are parents about what are we supposed to actually do when it comes to kids and allergies? Because my oldest is 12. And I feel like even in that time from different doctors, I've heard different things of, you should avoid these things when you're pregnant. You should not, you should purposely eat them when you're pregnant. You should not. And so I feel like as parents, sometimes we're left trying to figure out amongst all these theories, what are we actually supposed to do? So what is the actual research saying right now from the best you can tell about um, what is the best way with our children to, to put the odds in their favor?
1: Yes. So I'm a mom also, and I totally understand where you're coming from you know, as parents, we have to sort of dissect all of the information that's out there. And now, because of um, our our access, you know, to the internet and social media, there's so much information, and it really is hard to um, figure out which, which information is right, what to trust, what to be skepti- skeptical about. And so I totally 100% get it. Um, but, you know, from from a food allergy standpoint, from a prevention standpoint, I can say that, you know, the evidence is, the research is is there and it's actually, um, you know, it, it's quite good and it's just, you know, right now it's just finding a way to to explain it where people understand it and where people realize how they can sort of fit it into their lives because we're so busy. And so... I'll talk to you a little bit, again, I'll go back a little bit about the history. I mentioned how the American Academy of Pediatrics sort of reversed their their thinking and their guidelines, um, and that was about a decade ago. And so um, at that time, you know, um, researchers were sort of um, thinking to themselves, you know, why are food allergies increasing and is avoidance the, the best thing? And um, one of sort of like the landmark um, studies that was done that precipitated a lot of these other randomized controlled trials that have been done actually in the last five years, one of the studies was, um, was a study that looked at children in Israel compared to children in the UK. So so some some researchers in the UK got together and they were chatting about why peanut allergy was was the rates were increasing. And they said, you know, in Israel not many children have peanut allergies. And why is that? Well, they knew that children in Israel were actually exposed to peanut from a very early age. There's a snack called Bamba that um, Israeli children eat very from very early on. It's like a peanut um, puffed corn snack, and it's introduced into their diets very early, and so they were getting exposed to peanut very early and very often, and children in the UK were not exposed to peanut early and often. It actually um, was delayed their introduction and it wasn't really, peanut wasn't a part of their normal diet. So anyway, they, they took two populations of Jewish children in each, uh, e- each place, so a, a population of school aged Jewish children in Israel and one in the UK, and they sort of matched them, and they found that children in the UK had a 10 times higher uh, rate of peanut allergy compared to the children in Israel, and they Hypothesized that it was because of this early and often exposure to peanut, and so that um, you know was sort of one of the motivators to uh, have researchers begin structuring, structuring these trials to compare. Avoidance and early and sustained allergen introduction, and one of the big trials that came out was called the Leap Trial. Leap stands for Learning Early About Peanuts, and this was actually one of the trials that made this Bomba snack so famous, and that's why everyone knows about it now. Trader Joe's, you know, has their own version of it. Um, but basically, that that study looked at um, about 600 babies who were considered high risk, so that means they had severe eczema or they already had a diagnosed egg allergy. And they split them into groups and some of the children, all of these babies were aged four to 11 months of age and so uh, one of the groups was uh, asked to be, um, the moms, the parents were supposed to feed the babies peanuts multiple times a week for many, many months while the other group was supposed to avoid the introduction of peanuts into the baby's diets. And what they found at the end, which was many years later, was that the group who had been eating the peanut for all of those months and years had a much, much lower risk of diagnosed peanut allergy at the end. So there was a, about an 80% risk reduction when you compared the two groups. And so this was huge news and really exciting. And really precipitated a lot of what we know now. Um, You know, there are current, there are studies ongoing, but there have been multiple studies since that have shown similar results with the introduction of allergenic foods into, you know, uh, babies' diets around that same age. And so this study, this one study, the LEAP trial, actually, caused the National Institutes of Health, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and other national organizations, allergy organizations, and even international organizations to put out guidelines in 2017 recommending the early introduction, the early and sustained introduction of peanuts into babies' diets. And so, as I mentioned, other studies have been done and that have looked at other foods as well and we know that there is evidence for this for other allergenic foods and this is really now what the thinking is is that we have to get these allergens into our baby's diet early and we have to expose them often. And so by doing that, we can sort of train the immune system to be tolerant to these proteins. And maybe by doing this, we can actually decrease the rate of food allergies.
0: That's huge. And it's sad to know that for so long, we thought avoidance was the best option. And Probably that was actually creating more problems than solving them. But it's great now, I feel like, to, to have that understanding and to know of the risk factors you mentioned. Like if a baby has eczema, you want to keep an eye out. If there's early allergies or family history, you want to keep an eye out. But now to also have Uh, A well-researched tool for how to incorporate these foods safely, hopefully, and to reduce that risk over time. So to that note, you mentioned that all of these organizations had come out with guidelines. Are there specifics for parents as far as the timing and the amounts and how often these things should be introduced?
1: So right now there are specific guidelines with peanut and, you know, hopefully in the near future there will be uh, other guidelines with other foods. But um, in other countries, there are guidelines uh, for basically all allergenic foods. And so what we know is that we need to, you know, introduce... The foods. What we know is that there's basically there's we can call it like a window of opportunity, like a golden window, right, where we can sort of mold the the immune system either towards becoming tolerant to a food versus becoming allergic to it. And so, what we think is that this window starts around four months of age, and we don't know exactly how long you know the window's open for, but you know, based on the studies, we believe it's around four months of age, and it's less and it's less than a year of age. So we want the foods to be introduced um, within that time frame. So when I talk to moms and parents about this, you know, again, it can be very confusing, and I like to try to use analogies, um, especially like parent mom analogies. <laughs> because it just makes things easier to think about. Um, So often in clinic, I'll I'll talk about Play-Doh. I think, you know, so I have a three and a half year old and a six month old, but because of my three and a half year old, I'm like very well versed in in (laughs) Play-Doh. So what I like to say is, you know, when you first open Play-Doh, it's like fresh and new and soft and you can mold it into anything you want. You can make zoo animals or you know hearts or stars or anything you want to you want to make. You can you can mold it. And um, if you leave that Play-Doh out and you don't put it back in its in its um, in its cup with with the lid and you sort of find it three days later maybe in your shoe or somewhere your toddler hid it you pick it up and it's a little harder. You can't really mold it as well into what you want it to be. Maybe you can make it seem somewhat similar to a zoo animal, but you don't have, you know, it's not as easy, and so we don't know exactly what what the window is where the play doh became went from soft to hard, but we know it's you know somewhere in that few days, and so I look at the immune system sort of the same way, you know, when the ba- when babies are born and we have this um, small period of time when they're infants and when we're able to. Mold the immune system into what we want it to be. We, we, you know, it's easy, and and it's we can we can do um, we can do what we can to help mold it. And so, if we let that go too long, it just becomes harder and harder to do that. And so, I hope that makes sense. Um, again, I like to to use analogies.
0: <laughs> I love that. This episode is brought to you by Juve. They are my go-to for red light therapy. This is also called photobiomodulation. So what on earth is that and why do I like it so much? In short, it's a way to support the body using very specific wavelengths of light. And the research shows that this can improve mitochondrial function, increase ATP, which is cellular energy, and create all of the benefits that go along with that. It's been used around the world for its anti-aging and skin benefits, as well as to calm inflammation. I've personally noticed the benefits for hair growth, skin health, and as part of my regimen to keep my thyroid healthy, even though I technically still have Hashimoto's. It's in remission, and I feel like Juve has been a big part of this for me. I have a big Juve light at home and I use it all the time, but I miss it when I travel, which I tend to do a lot these days. That's why I'm so excited about their new handheld device. It's called the Juve Go, and it gives you all the same power of a regular Juve, but in the palm of your hand, so you can take it anywhere. It's also less expensive, which is a plus. This means I can make sure that my thyroid and my face still get the benefits of red light therapy even when I'm traveling so that I can function at my best and keep wrinkles away. Here's the tip i also like to use a dab of castor oil on my eyelashes and hairline just before using the juve as i found this is great for hair growth and the juve seems to intensify the results you can learn more and get a free gift with any purchase by going to juve.com forward slash wellness and using the code WellnessMama, all one word again that's juve j-o-o-v.com forward slash wellnessmama and the code wellness Mama. This episode is brought to you by Organifi, and I'm so excited to finally tell you about them because here's a confession. I have known about Organifi for a really long time, and even though so many of my friends and experts I trust rave about them, I never tried their stuff until recently because I thought, first of all, how can it actually be that good? Well, I tried it, and it turns out that not only is it that good, it's better than I expected. Organifi has green juice, red juice, which is an antioxidant red drink, and it's delicious, and a golden milk turmeric drink, along with a plant-based protein. Everything they have is completely organic, and they all actually taste good, unlike a lot of other green drinks and protein powders. I've especially been loving their red juice lately, especially at this time of year for immunity. It tastes amazing and it has a blend of antioxidants from strawberries, cranberries, blueberries, pomegranates. And they also add in beets, cordyceps, reishi, rhodiola, and a lot more. So this particular blend is formulated to increase energy, boost metabolism, and reduce factors that lead to aging. Their green juice is minty and delicious. And I noticed it has almost 800 five-star reviews. You can check out those two products along with their whole suite of products and save 20% just by being a listener of the wellness Mama podcast, go to organifi.com forward slash wellness mama. That's O R G A N I F I.com forward slash wellness mama and use the code wellness 20 for 20% off. And I'm curious. So my audience, I feel like is very um, typically well-researched and very educated. And I've talked a lot in the past about leaky gut or gut permeability as it's more accurately called. Um, and I know that at least from some of what I've read and, and correct me certainly if I'm wrong on this, but that babies naturally have a little bit more permeable of a gut from what I've read. So that things like the antibodies they need from breast milk and, and things can transport through that and into the bloodstream. And if I'm correct on that, it well, first of all, am I correct on that? And the second question would be: Is this part of the reason? Like, is there a time frame of that that is basically allowing this exposure? I would guess in small amounts through breast milk as well.
1: So, you know, to answer your first question about whether or not um, the gut is leaky, you know, the job of our of our gut of of sort of the the surface, the lining of our intestine is really to su- to be be the police and let certain things in and then protect us and stop certain things from coming in, right? If you think about actually the surface area of our gut, it's really interesting. You know, you you think about maybe the skin as being the major police um, in terms of letting things into our body, but the gut, the lining of the gut is actually 200 times that of the skin. So the gut has a a much bigger challenge and um, really... Has a very large part in terms of um, immunity and being, you know, part of total immune function. And so, what we know is that, you know, the the intestine and sort of the gut itself is actually mature uh, within a few days after birth, um, and then it continues to mature. Um, during months after birth, and it has the ability to be permeable, to let, you know, macromolecules and, you know, food proteins and antibodies and bacteria in to train the immune system and um, help it become tolerant to these things. And so, um, and so, if if that's what you mean by leaky, then yes, I mean it is somewhat permeable. But again, it is at a mature level, as I mentioned, within a few days after birth, um, and then continues to mature. And if we if we sort of let it go without exposing it to all of these different um, macromolecules, then it won't it won't continue to mature in the way we want it to, right? So it it won't learn. And um, one of one of the ways I like to to talk about this when parents ask me is by using sort of a police analogy. So you know you think about um, police. The 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 gut lining is the police um, for our body, and so. It's like, um, it's like rookie police versus sort of policemen who have, who have been practicing for years and years. And, you know, maybe the rookies don't know who to let in and, and who to keep out. And so you have to, you have to teach them, you have to show them different examples of who is okay to let in and um, over time, they become experts, right? And then they just know, and it's not a big deal. And think about it, the same thing with food. If we show our immune cells over and over at an early age when it's learning, if we keep showing it these harmless things over and over, then it'll just start ignoring them and I'll just, you know, leave them alone and let them do what, what they need to do. And the same with like good bacteria, right? The bacteria that we want to hang around and help us. So um, so hopefully that answered your question. And if not, you know, definitely let me know.
0: It did. And I, I want to, in just a minute, definitely transition to solutions because I know that you've been part of a team that's developed actual solutions for this. But one more question I often get, and I, I want to get your take on, is the role of breastfeeding. Obviously, the World Health Organization and the AAP and all these organizations recommend breastfeeding, and we know about the benefits. But one thing that it often is talked about is that there seems to be a slightly reduced risk of um, food allergies in babies who are breastfed. But I also know that I've seen recent research that this alone is definitely not enough to prevent food allergies. So from your perspective as an immunologist and also as a mom, what do you think, if anything, is the role and the benefit of breastfeeding specifically related to food allergies? Of course, I'm not arguing that it's not beneficial in many, many other ways, but how do you see it coming into play specifically with food allergy?
1: Absolutely. Great question. And so, yes, I, I as, a, as a mom and as a physician, uh, think breastfeeding is extremely beneficial. I'm currently... Breastfeeding my six-month-old, and you know, breastfed my son as well. Um, you know, breastfeeding exposes the baby to mom's antibodies and um, certain chemicals called cytokines, and mom's microbes and mom's immune cells, and also, um, you know, nutrients. And so, I think it's I think it's wonderful if if you can do it. Um, and um, you know, with regard to food allergy. While we know that breastfeeding can be beneficial, it has not yet been proven that moms can actually prevent allergies by eating allergenic foods and then exposing the baby through breast milk. One of the reasons why is it's somewhat difficult to study because every mom metabolizes foods differently. And so um, although you can find uh, food proteins in breast milk, it's, it varies from mom to mom. Now, that being said, you know there are there is some evidence that breastfeeding, along with early and sustained allergen introduction, um, has you know benefits for preventing food allergies. And it may be that when food allergens are sort of transmitted through breastfeeding, they and and along with mom's antibodies and mom's immune cells, they can sort of be packaged all together, and it might. Prime the immune system to develop tolerance when those food allergens are are directly ingested um, you know, within a few months uh, by the baby. And so again, there is there is research there, but it's there's nothing that that has been fully proven in in order to change guidelines. And so currently the guidelines are. Um, moms who are breastfeeding and even, you know, moms who are pregnant should not specifically avoid allergenic foods, thinking that it will prevent uh, or protect their baby from developing food allergies. So, we want moms, you know, to have a varied diet and include allergens in their diets. Um, you know, pregnant moms and breastfeeding moms, if they're um, able to, to tolerate those foods and not avoiding them for for specific reasons. But we don't believe that breastfeeding alone without early uh, oral exposure to foods that's um, frequent, uh, we, we don't believe that that on its own is protective for, um, uh, for food allergy or, or is beneficial in preventing food allergies.
0: Got it. Okay. So a sign of hope for all those pregnant mamas who are probably who've craved peanut butter and been afraid to eat it. It's probably fine, but also not the only step you should take, which brings me to the part I'm the most excited to talk about because I hate talking about a problem without being able to give any kind of a solution or hope. And I know that you have been part of a team that has developed a completely scientifically backed system based on all the research that you just talked about that's designed for parents to be able to safely introduce these foods in a way that hopefully will not um, lead to allergies or intolerance. So can you talk about the process and then what you have developed in through that research and through that process?
1: Absolutely, uh, I'd be happy to. So um, I'll give you just a, a brief Background of how it sort of came to be, um, I have a friend who 's a physician and his uh, his second child unfortunately was diagnosed with multiple food allergies at around seven months of age and he 's very smart, um, very educated um, but but didn 't have really you know any food allergy in his family, so wasn 't um, you know fully aware about um, food allergies and and um, early allergen introduction, but he knew that uh, he had to get allergens into his son. And so, when he, you know, gave his son peanut butter around that time, unfortunately, his son had a reaction. And so, that motivated him to think about how this potentially could have been prevented. And um, he thought of. Uh, uh, the idea of, of what came to be our product, Ready, Set Food, and talked about it with um, his brother-in-law, Daniel. And so Andy is the name of my friend. And so those two, Andy and Daniel, have actually um, co-founded um, this company. And uh, they called me and asked me my thoughts on this idea of creating a product that could help parents get uh, important food allergens into their babies at an early age where they could do it often and where it could be easy and safe and evidence based. And that's what led us after multiple, multiple discussions and meetings and um, studying all of the literature and and the trials and the science behind early allergen introduction and talking to other top experts in the allergy world and in pediatrics and in GI, um, that led us to create uh, what we have now, which is called Ready, Set Food. And it's basically um, it's, it's an all-natural, organic uh, uh, infant supplement that you give to your baby on a daily basis and um, it can be mixed with breast milk or formula or even pureed food. And so the idea is, you know, babies at four months of age are not necessarily able to eat. Any of us that have kids know that trying to feed a four or five or six month old is not easy. I actually tried to do it with my son, David, when he was five months old. I remember, you know, sort of, spending a lot of my time making different purees and little concoctions of you know almond butters and peanut butters and egg you know scrambled eggs and things and trying to feed him these on a consistent basis because i knew that early allergen introduction even back then that was right after the leap trial came out and so i had been you know advocating this in in my clinic to my patients and i knew it was important but even though it was important, it was so hard to do. And so that was another sort of um, motivating factor for us when we were creating this product. And so um, in terms of... Ease, you know, it's it's a daily packet, pre-measured packet that you pour into a bottle. It dissolves in the bottle, and then you know you feed feed your baby the bottle. Um, in terms of safety, we've taken um, a lot of the national guidelines and evidence-based studies and use that to help with our protocol. So basically, we start the uh, initial phase, the buildup phase with very low doses of peanut, egg and milk and we increase those over time. We also introduce, uh, it's called a sequential introduction where we introduce one food at a time and that's based on the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations with allergenic foods. They say to introduce one new food every three to five days so that just in case of a reaction, you can be aware of which food um, was the precipitator. And so the reason we chose peanut egg and milk is because those are the most common food allergies in children. So even though about 170 foods can cause uh, food allergy, there are eight common food groups that are recognized by the FDA as, uh, you know, the most important food allergens. And so of those well, I'll just mention them, that's peanut egg milk, tree nuts, soy wheat, fish and shellfish. And so of those, uh, milk, then egg, then peanut, in decreasing order, actually make up 80% of childhood food allergies. So that's huge that those three um, foods cause so many food allergies. Now, peanut often gets a lot of airtime because it, it can cause very severe reactions. But when you think about very young children, babies and, you know, preschool age children, you really need to remember that egg and milk are so important. Um, milk is actually the number one cause of food allergic reactions in school, in, in preschool and school age children. And when it comes down to quality of life, those are actually the hardest foods to avoid. I mean, anyone, you know, with children and knows about a birthday parties and in um, and preschool events and you know milk and egg are in almost everything and so you know that can be very isolating for these children and so thinking about you know the impact on quality of life is really important here and so that's one of the reasons we chose those foods for the product.
0: Got it and I think An important key point I want to make sure that we highlight that you just talked about is that you're starting with incredibly small doses. I know you can elaborate that a little bit more um, to to define just how small. But obviously, this would be difficult, I would think, to get exactly right from the immune perspective if you were trying to do it on your own. Because I know there are parents out there, DIY type, and I'm that way myself. Thinking, oh, well, why couldn't I just do this at home with the foods and introduce them a teeny bit? But you guys are actually using the scientifically studied amounts, and from what I've read, they're actually very, very tiny amounts. It would be difficult to get in a correctly measured dose into a baby. Correct?
1: Yes, that's exactly right. So if you want to think about it in, you know, in um, uh, actual food, you can think about and and again, the powders that we're using are actually. Food powders. We're not. Um, there, there's nothing added to the uh, to the product. There's no added sugars. There's no preservatives. It's really just these whole foods, and we're able because of all the research we've done to kind of mirror what was done in the clinical trials. In, 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 when we get to the maintenance dose, but in terms of the buildup, we used our knowledge to create. Um, this uh, this safer way of introduction. And so if you look at the milk, it's actually less than a teaspoon of yogurt. The peanut is actually about an eighth teaspoon of peanut butter. And the egg is about one two fiftieth of an egg. So yes, you're right. These are tiny, tiny amounts, actually less than what families would, would you know, typically first feed their infants. And then, um, again, it builds up. And when, you know, there's sort of two phases. There's a build-up phase and then the maintenance phase. And when you get to the maintenance phase, the doses are built to mirror what was done in clinical trials.
0: Cool. And in the clinical trials, just to go back to that point for a minute, um, they were able to show a very dramatic – I'm not remembering the number off the top of my head, but there was a very, very dramatic reduction in food allergies in these children, correct?
1: Yeah. So in, in uh, the major – trial, the LEAP trial, they showed about an 80% reduction. And in some of the other trials, it was very similar. Uh, You know, the range is basically anywhere from 67% to about an 80% reduction in food allergies. So these are, are you know, huge numbers. And I think that's why it's, you know, it's so important to get this information out and to have people um, understand uh, that, you know, that early and sustained introduction really can be beneficial. Now, I do want to point out that, um, well, well, there's a couple things I want to mention. So you you had mentioned risk factors, and so I just want to go back to that for one second. Um, in terms of risk factors for food allergy, eczema is probably – biggest risk factor eczema is a a skin disorder where um, the skin becomes sort of red and and itchy and bumpy and dry and uh, what we know is that babies and with eczema uh, with severe eczema almost 70% will go on to develop a food allergy. And even babies with mild eczema, um, around 25% will develop food allergies. So that's a huge, huge risk factor. Now, the guidelines do state that if your baby has severe eczema, you should not do early allergen introduction without speaking to your pediatrician because you will likely need a a blood test or a skin test prior to introduction. So I want to state that. I want to make sure um, everyone understands that. Um, And then just continuing on about risk factors. Yes, family history is a risk factor, but that being said, only about 50% of children who are diagnosed with food allergy have a direct family member with with food allergy. So you know, it's it's not the biggest. Uh, genetics are not the only thing that that are playing a role here. And so, I want to stress that.
0: Got it. And I I want to talk a little bit more about the timing as well, because I know a lot of the moms listening are more naturally minded, and like even for instance, for me, I never introduced any solid foods whatsoever to my babies until they were at least six months old. And I know you said that range was four months to eleven months. Is there like it can a parent safely introduce? Um, the ready-set food at any point during that? Like, could a mom wait to s- until six months and then introduce it then if she was more comfortable? Or is there a time that seems to be the gold standard within that range?
1: That's a really good point. And so what we know is basically the earlier, the better. So while the studies showed that, you know, even with introduction as late as 11 months, um, there could still be benefits, Um, As you wait later and later, there there is an increased risk of becoming allergic to uh, those specific foods. So although that this is a window, we we think that the earlier the immune system is exposed to these food proteins, and if it's done on a consistent basis, then the better chance you have of preventing food allergy. That being said, if there are moms out there that are you know that have six seven eight month old babies right now and are sort of deciding if they should be introducing you know i i I think you know the answer is yes, the answer is um, you know to do it in in uh, a safe and effective way, and you know using the product can be very, using ready set food can be very helpful. And um, as I mentioned, you know, make life a little bit easier. But even if you wanted to DIY and do it at home yourself, I think that's great. I think really the message is to just do it.
0: I agree. I think it's so exciting that we now have this research and we know that there is something that we can do as parents that improves the outcome so drastically up to 80% for children. And so I echo that for sure. Um, I know you guys make it very easy, but to any parents listening, I echo that 100%. Just this is definitely something to research and make sure that you consider for your children. Um, Something I didn't know about when I had mine, and thankfully we don't have any with food allergies, but I have many close friends who have children whose lives are affected daily by food allergies. And I'm so excited for the work that you're doing and the whole team on trying to reverse this trend. I think it's one of the many things that our children are facing in higher rates than we did. And, um, but like we mentioned in the beginning, it's rising so much more than the rates of other, uh, things like we know that chronic disease, for instance, is affecting children at a much higher rate, but allergies are really, really rapidly rising. So I'm just so grateful for you guys and the work that you're doing on trying to reverse these trends and. And so I just wanted to say thank you for that and for your time and being here today and for explaining this. I know that both as a mom and a researcher, you share such a passion for helping the next generation, and I'm just so grateful for the work that you do.
1: Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you for saying that. It's um, I, you know, I totally agree with you. It's it's actually a really exciting time to be in my field and and learn about all of this really new information. You know, I, I think as an allergist, I'm, I'm sort of innately interested in, um, in public health because I see so many chronic diseases, um, you know, diagnosed early on in children and I see how they affect the patients, the, the family, the community. And, um, you know, I'm also really interested in education and always have been. And so, um, a lot of you know a lot of my job is actually educating my patients in clinic and sort of talking about uh, misconceptions in allergy and and lastly like i'm I'm really passionate about innovation and thinking about um, how how to think of things differently how to how to how to have new ways of thinking and so this topic allows me to incorporate all of those things and it's really fun. And I think, you know, I I tell my husband all the time, I'm quite lucky to be able to, to really enjoy what I'm doing and also see the potential for how many people, um, you know, we could help by, by doing this. So... You know, thanks for saying that. It's very, very exciting.
0: Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And uh, I'll make sure that in the show notes, um, there's a link to for people to find out more. I know that you have put together a lot of resources and educational videos that explain this more in depth, as well as they can find out information on the clinical studies that we talked about and all the, the current research, as well as finding out more about Ready, Set Food and what to do for those of you who have babies in that age range, um, things you can actually do to help reduce their risk, So all of that will be linked in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm. You can also just Google ready, set food and all of it comes up as well. Uh, but Dr. Marks Kogan, thank you so much for being here. I feel like this is, like I said at the beginning, a drastically important topic. I'm so glad you're talking about it. And I'm so grateful that you are here today.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Katie. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much
0: of course. And I think we'll have to reserve some time for a round two when we get questions. And in the meantime, thank you to all of you for listening and for sharing your most valuable asset of your time with us today. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time. And thanks as always for listening.